Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome to Center Street tonight. Thank you for being here. If you're watching online, we welcome you. Maybe you're sitting in a coffee shop or your living room or you're a student in your dorm room somewhere. Thanks for, for coming online to watch us. And we're really pleased you're here tonight. Uh, this summer, we are doing a series on the questions that Jesus asked. And Jesus did not ask these questions so he could get information about us. Instead, he asked these questions knowing that when you ask a question, it always begs an answer. We're always prompted to answer. And so these questions were asked for our benefit. We're going to look at another question tonight. A question that's a little bit, well, it's actually quite challenging. But we're looking forward to it. And it's from John 8. And instead of me reading it or you reading it uh, together, we're actually going to have the passage spoken to us. If you'll just give your attention to your left. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. They said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus, he stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she said, No, Lord. And he said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's quite the story. Story of rocks, story of grace, and a story of freedom. I invite you tonight, let's enter into this story. As if we were there that day with Jesus in the temple. He'd come in, a crowd had gathered around him, he was teaching. You can almost imagine the excitement. Oh, Jesus has something important to say again. And then all of a sudden there's a ruckus. The Pharisees bring in this woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. Now the, the uh, scriptures doesn't give us details what she was wearing, but if she'd been caught in the act of adultery, it's quite possible they may have just ripped her away. She may have been standing there naked. At best, maybe a bed sheet on, 
forced to stand before Jesus, this crowd, and the Pharisees. No opportunity to cover up, deny, or repent. She was just exposed and guilty. We've all been guilty of sin like this woman, haven't we? Sometimes we get caught like she did. Sometimes we don't. You know, maybe it was that one-time sin that we just can't believe we gave in to. Or maybe it's the habitual sins, those things we've actually been pretty good at covering up, hoping that we don't get caught. And if we do get caught, then we try to deny or we try to rationalize. Let's think about what are some of the, the examples from our own lives where we are guilty whether we get caught or not. What's the speed limit on Deerfoot Trail? Sorry, I'm getting really personal, aren't I? You know, there's nothing worse than showing up at church and somebody saying to you, was that you that sped by at 120 kilometers? Or you get the speed ticket in the mail, right? Are you guilty because you got caught? Or because of your actions, your sinful actions? Maybe you're a teen and you've told your parents where you said you're going to spend the night at your best friend's. Oh, you go there, but you end end up going somewhere to another party. Are you guilty only if you get caught? Or your fraudulent recording of your income on your taxes? Or those vegetables? The vegetables that sit on the front of your top shelf looking really good, but it's actually the cheesecake that's behind that you turn to when you are lonely or you need an emotional boost. Or it's the porn that you're watching on your phone, but you keep Facebook open at the same time so if somebody comes in the room, you can quickly swipe back so that nobody sees what you're watching and the the appetite for erotic stimulus that you're feeding. You see, our guilt is not dependent on getting caught. Our guilt comes because of our sinful actions. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory or the perfection of God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, when we think about what it must have been like for that woman, guilty, exposed, and according to the law, deserving of death, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to actually put ourselves in that situation as well. All of us, guilty of sin. And according to scripture, the wages of sin or the rightful payback for our sin before a holy God is death. We're all in this place with stones aimed at our head. Well, in the midst of all this emotion, this story, we've also got the Pharisees. They were almost salivating at the opportunity they had to try and take Jesus out on this one. They were, their attempt was to try and trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the keepers of the law. 
they both um, explained what the law said and how it was to be interpreted. And in this case, they didn't care about the woman. They didn't even care so much about upholding the law. They were bound and determined to achieve their own agenda, which was to make themselves look better and get rid of this Jesus who was challenging their religious superiority. In their pursuit to uphold the law, they were self-righteous. They had this sense of superiority. In their high and mighty view of themselves, they had become the epitome of hypocrisy. They did whatever they could to look good. And they used the law that day not for its purpose, which was a tool to uphold order and purity to rout out evil. No, they were using it for their own evil desires. They were using it to prop themselves up. Well, let's again, let's place ourselves in the story. Those rocks that the Pharisees were holding. Do we ever hold rocks? No, I mean, that was pretty cruel. I would never do that. I actually, I'm pretty hard on Pharisees sometimes. But as I was thinking about this message, I was reminded of a story, something that happened to me. I'll never forget the Sunday morning. I got a phone call. One of my best friends, her husband had had an affair. I was so angry. I was livid at what he had done to my friend, to their family, to the ministry that they had been part of. He was guilty. Man, it was a good thing he lived in another province and he wasn't in the same room as me. Because I'm sure I would have hurled one of these at him. And as I, as I held on to this rock of anger towards him, At the same time, it was like this um, self-righteousness within me also started to well up. I would never do that. I'm so glad. Oh, man. You know, there's just this growing anger and self-righteousness. And it was in that moment the Holy Spirit pierced my heart and in my mind. And I'll never forget just this little whisper in my, my heart that said, Rosemary, you are not beyond having an affair. Whoa, 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 hold on, wait, wait, wait. I love my husband, I've been, tr- I've been true to him, I would never do that. Then I remembered a verse. <laughs> You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Okay, so statistics would say that at least 50% of the people in this room right now are watching online are women. And women, I am one of you, so I hear this verse and I think, yeah, that's right, there goes those men again, always thinking about sex. Any other self-righteous women in this room? Now, you know what? Uh, The intent of this goes, of this verse, goes far beyond man lusting after a beautiful woman that walks past. And I think the intent of this verse actually reads more something like this. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who fantasizes about being with a man or a woman, flirts with a married person at the office, or dresses or acts provocatively to get sexual attention, 
has already committed adultery in their heart. And when I'm presented with that truth, I can no longer claim sin-free status. And I realize I am as guilty as my friend's husband. And when I was confronted with that, I had to drop the rock and walk away from my self-righteousness. You see, before God offered grace and love, forgiveness to this one woman, he actually broadened the view. He didn't just zero in on her. He made it wide, showing us, showing the people that were there, they all needed his grace. And he shows us that we are all equally in need of his grace, whether we are, that we are all trapped in sin and need a savior. All of us. I love one of the details in this passage where it says that it was the oldest ones who dropped the stones first and walked away. It's almost like you'd see those old men had a, in a split second had a video of their, of their life flash before their eyes and they saw all the times that they had messed up, that they had broken the law, they had not lived up to God's standards. And they realized at that moment they could not even throw a pebble at that woman. I want to be like those oldest men and be the first one to drop my rocks. Well, I want to take a little break from the story here for a minute and have a teaching moment. So if you were to read this passage in your Bible, it would probably, most translations would have a little um, heading across the top saying that this passage is not included in the early Greek manuscripts. So I went looking, okay, so what's this about? And I did some research, and it's true that many scholars uh, feel that this passage does not fit the Apostle John's writing style, and that there's fairly strong evidence that it was indeed added much later to the canon of Scripture. But for many of these same scholars, there's also overwhelming support that it be included in our, in our modern translations. Why? because it is such a strong example of the gospel. There is nothing in this story that goes against Jesus' other's teaching, and there's nothing in this passage that contradicts other passages in scripture. In fact, it mirrors some passages very, very closely, one of which is Romans chapter one. And in that chapter, Paul, writing to the emotions, to the, writing to the Romans says, he says that, that he's making a very strong argument against sexual sin, including homosexual sin. He goes into detail about how people have gone against their created identity and have given themselves over to idol worship, which leads them to do things with their bodies that goes against God's design. Now, I want to read the next five verses after that, the last five verses in Romans chapter 1 because it extends the reality of our sin beyond sexual sin. Listen to what it says. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that never should be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, 
envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyways. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That's a pretty extensive list, isn't it, of sins? But before we have any amount of self-righteousness, I actually want to read the next verse. So what follows that? Listen closely. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourselves. For you who judge others do these very same things. We are all sinners. We are all guilty. We are all equally in need of God's grace. Now as we move on further into this story, I want us to focus on how Jesus responds to the woman. There's a couple things that Jesus does not do. The first thing that he does not do is he does not rewrite the rule book. He doesn't say to this woman, oh, I know you've had a really hard life. I understand your, your dad was pretty mean to you. You've been hurt so badly you couldn't help yourself. He was a really good man you were in bed with. Your friends are all sleeping around. Culture says it's okay. I know my standard is pretty high. It's hard, isn't it? Nope. Jesus did not make excuses for her behavior and he did not rewrite the law of Moses. Listen to Jesus' own words from Matthew. Don't misunderstand why I came. I did not come to abolish, that means to tear apart or get rid of the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. That means give it its full intent. And I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. I love how one author put this. He said, Jesus did not trim God's standard to fit whatever chaos we have in our lives. Let me say that one again. Jesus did not trim, I mean, he didn't cut it back, he didn't reduce it. Jesus did not trim God's standard to fit whatever chaos we have in our lives. The law was not adjusted. Jesus came to uphold the law. In fact, he actually expanded it by saying it isn't just about what you do, it's about what's in your heart and what's in your mind as well. And another thing that Jesus did not do, second thing, is he didn't tell her first that she had to stop her behavior. Now, unlike some of the other encounters we read about in scripture, like, for instance, the rich young ruler, where Jesus very bluntly said, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And there's many times that Jesus is blunt. But in this example, in this story, he was blunt with the religious leaders. But he was full of grace and love and mercy for this woman. 
So what do we take away from this for ourselves? We need to apply the law to ourselves. We need to deal with the sin in our own lives. You know, Jesus warns us elsewhere about focusing on the speck, the little piece of dirt in someone else's eye when we've got a big honking log in our own. So after we've dealt with the sin in our own lives, then we come with grace and truth and love that's undergirded with truth to other people. And I think we often think we either have to have grace or truth. It's one or the other. But in actual fact, there is no love without truth. If we just focus on truth, we risk being like the Pharisees who uphold the law, but there sure isn't very much love. Or if all we do is love and we change or reshape the truth, then that's not true love either. I want us to read together four of the verses, four or five verses from 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And as we're reading it, I want you to take special note of what it says about truth and love. So let's read this together. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. I'm going to be really honest with you. This pairing of truth and love is challenging for me. It's challenging for me, especially in my interactions with people who don't live their lives based on the same values or principles as I do, especially in the area of sexuality. I had gotten to know a young man over a course of a couple years. One day I got a random Facebook message from him and said, Rosemary, can we meet, meet for coffee? Got something I'd like to talk to you about. So we met at Starbucks, had a, some chit-chat, and then as the conversation started to go more personal, this is what he said to me. I think I'm gay. The angst inside of me was intense. Oh my goodness, what am I supposed to say? My mind was racing, trying to figure out what Bible verses I could share with him. And at that moment, I flipped from being a friend, listening to his story and his reality, to someone needing to make sure that he knew the law and how he was to obey it. I deeply regret that I missed an incredible chance that day to show love and empathy and mercy for that young man. I was so intent on upholding the law of which he already knew. He'd grown up in a Christian home, He'd gone to church all his life. He'd been to Bible school. He knew, his, he knew his Bible. And I was coming at him with the law, and what he needed was love. How do I know he needed love? Well, he told me a story. 
His story of pain and profound loneliness. A story of rejection by his family and his church. Suffering under condemnation. Christians were hurling stones at him. Well, we met one more time about six weeks later. Same Starbucks. But this time that young man was sitting across from me presenting as a woman. Clothes, makeup, even the figure of a woman. He had found love in another community. If I could do that again, I would try to understand what he was going through. What was going on in his heart. I would have tried to have walked with him as he explored what God's good plan, God's best plan for his life really is. As Christians, I think we so often first desire to stop or change the behavior. But Jesus shows us in this story that when we extend love, love changes the heart. And when there's a changed heart, then that results in a changed life. You know, since that time, I've, I've met and spent time with a number of people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And what I'm learning from them is that it's a true gift of love if we are able to come with a humble and gracious attitude, a willingness to listen and to get to know them as people instead of an issue or a project. I suspect, I suspect that if more people who were trapped in all kinds of sexual sin, including pornography, sexual addiction, homosexuality, fantasy, masturbation, and I'm not just going to point my finger at sexual sins. Let's include lying and gluttony, envy, pride, gossip, slander. If people knew how much God loved them, and that he doesn't condemn them, but he died for them so they could be free. And if we as a Christian community also show that we love them and we value them, I suspect we would see many more people respond to God's invitation to accept his love and grace and meet him at the cross. I want to share another story with you. This one's from a family that I know very well. It's a story of how God used radical love and some unconventional actions to show his love. This couple had raised their, their family in the church and to know about God, to love God. But one of their daughters made the choices in her teen years to go against her faith. Her heart had moved far from God. She'd quit going to church. She was angry with Christians, including her parents. And at that point in her life, she wanted nothing to do with Jesus. She started dating a fellow, and he was an atheist. In fact, he was vehemently against Christians. Anything that those parents gave their daughter that had to do with God or Christianity, he forced her to throw it out. Now, the dad found out that his daughter and this man had plans to move in together. His heart was broken. That wasn't what he wanted for his daughter. But as he prayed about the situation, 
he felt he needed to show them, both his daughter and her boyfriend, that he loved her and that he cared for her despite the choices that she was making. And so he did something pretty radical. He went over on moving day and helped them move in together. He didn't use that chance to tell them they were making a mistake or that they were going against law, that God's law. When he told me the story, he said she understood that what she was doing. She understood that she was going against God's best for them. And he said, I just felt I had to show love. I had to show kindness. And that I strongly believed that somehow God was going to use that act of kindness. That couple, that young couple, they are now full-time missionaries. How did that happen? <laughs> well, that staunch atheist boyfriend said that it was his girlfriend's father's act of love and kindness that was, was, was what started the process of breaking down his walls of hatred towards God. Over time, he surrendered his life to Jesus. His wife turned back and their family has been forever changed. May we be givers of such love. May we find ways to show kindness and grace. Maybe that's to our family members. Maybe it's our neighbors, our coworkers, and maybe even people we aren't comfortable hanging around. May we make them feel welcome in our homes, in our church, in our hearts while they are still caught in sin. You see, Jesus' response to this woman is actually a foreshadowing of the cross, of what's gonna happen on the cross. The sinless one, Jesus, the only one who could have picked up a stone, didn't. Instead, he shows her love and mercy and unmerited grace by pronouncing that he does not condemn her. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what the cross is really all about, isn't it? This woman did not have to spend a year proving that she wasn't gonna sleep with anybody who wasn't her husband before God, before Jesus would say, I don't condemn you. She didn't have to get herself all cleaned up. No, it was right in that moment that Jesus said, I do not condemn you. It was at that moment, just like for us, when we go to the cross, we don't come clean. We don't come free of sin. We come burdened, carrying all those things that we've done that have gone against God's good plan for our life, his commands, the ways we've hurt others, the way we've hurt ourselves. And we come burdened and God says, Jesus says, I'm here and let's do an exchange. I'm going to take all your sin. I'm going to take that from you. And in its place, I'm going to give you my righteousness. That's a pretty sweet deal, right? We give God our sin, we give Jesus our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. 
the great exchange that happens at the cross. The good news. When he says, I do not condemn you, he's saying, I am forgiving you for everything. There is nothing that you have ever done that falls outside of God's forgiveness when we bring it to the cross and give it to Jesus. So Jesus proclaims upon us, I do not condemn you. But you know what sometimes happens? We move back to this pile of rocks and we actually start to pick up them and throw them at ourselves, right? It's called self-condemnation. Oh, I can't believe I did that, I was so stupid. I just can't forgive myself. My heart always breaks. I'm sitting with a woman that describes to me how she's had an abortion. Maybe it was six months ago, five years, 10, 20, 40 years ago. And to hear her say, I, you know, I believe that Jesus forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. Listen to what John, 1 John 3.20 says. If your heart condemns, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. You see, when we bring our sin to the cross and we give it to Jesus and he puts his righteousness on us, he clothes us in righteousness. It's done, it's complete. We don't have to forgive ourselves. In fact, scripture, nowhere in scripture does it tell us to forgive ourselves. It says, when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's complete. Everything that we've ever done, he takes when we give it to him and we don't have to carry the burden anymore. All we have to do is walk in the freedom that he offers us. Because not only does Jesus say, neither do I condemn you, the next part says, go and sin no more. In those five words, go and sin no more, five words, Jesus is upholding both love and law, grace and truth. Now you may be wondering, why do we have a coyote trap on the platform? I can honestly say I have never spoken before with my hand on a coyote trap before this weekend. You know, I think sometimes we think of that statement that God, that Jesus made go and sin no more. Almost like we were um, a mother with, let's say, a little, you know, little boy, rambunctious, and he had a new pair, of, new pair of pants on, he goes outside, comes back in, it's got grass stains on it, there's a tear in the knee, the pocket's ripped, and she looks at him and says, don't do that again! That's not the attitude that Jesus has. Instead, it's almost more like he looks at this looks at this little, this woman like a, let's say a little bunny rabbit caught in a cage, a cage of her own making. He doesn't make excuses for her. She got in that cage, but she's in the cage and she's trapped. She's trapped in sin. And he says, I want you to not sin anymore. I am actually going to free you. Now go. Go, go and sin. Don't, get out of here. This is, this is going to kill you. 
Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what this represents. When we're trapped in sin, life does not go well for us. And Jesus says, I know that. So I actually want to free you. I've freed you. I haven't condemned you. I've taken your sin from you. Now go, go, go and sin no more. Go and be free of all the things that have trapped you. But if you're like me, sometimes I'm like a three-year-old with a temper tantrum. I don't want to do it that way. Or maybe more like a cocky teenager. I can figure that out myself and do it my way. But when Jesus gave his commandments to his people, listen to what, what it says. You must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Well, you mean he wasn't just arbitrarily making them because he, he was a big mean God? No, he gave us these commandments for our own good because he knows what happens when we're caught in a trap. Life gets pretty small. And he says, I actually want to free you. Go, go, go and be free. You know, he made this same offer to the Israelites. Look at this passage from Deuteronomy. He says, today I have given you a choice. A choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Oh, that you would choose life. <laughs> what an invitation. Oh, that you would choose life. Get out of the cage. Repent. Don't do those things anymore. That's what Jesus offers us today. He's offering us liberation. Liberation to a new life. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us anything further about this woman. I wish there was a sequel. You know, maybe the first movie would have been called Escape from Death. And then if there was a second movie, it might be called something like Living and Loving. You see, because we aren't just freed from something. We're also freed for something. John 13, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment. I'm giving you a new opportunity. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. Now imagine if this woman had been in the back of the room when Jesus says this to his, his disciples. I want you to go and I want you to love people the way I have loved you. I can imagine her jumping up and going, yes, that's what I've been doing. Ever since Jesus set me free, I have been out. I haven't been sleeping with people. I've been loving people the same way that Jesus loved me. It's incredible. I've been giving hugs to everybody. Holy hugs. In fact, I saw those, those Pharisees the other day. I couldn't help myself. I just went up and gave them a great big hug and said, I love you and Jesus loves you. The Bible doesn't say that, by the way. It's a bit of, you know, writer's freedom there on my part. But isn't that what each one of us should be doing? Like, really? Should we not be so incredibly grateful for what happened to us at the cross, 
and that we've been freed and that we are just oozing with love. When Jesus pronounced over us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I believe he was saying, apply the law to yourself. Uphold the law. Show me that you love me by obeying my commandments, by saying that you trust that the commandments I have given you are actually for your own good. Believe me, trust me, obey me, love me. And then love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And the end of that statement where Jesus um, gives this new commandment to his disciples, it ends with this. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Interestingly, it doesn't say your obedience to the law will prove to people you are my disciples. No, it says your love. Obey God. Apply the law to yourself and love others. Are we known for our love? I mean, really radical, unrestrained, unselfish, non-judgmental, Jesus-type love. Love that went into homes of those despised in society, showed them kindness, friendship, ate with them. Love that hung out with prostitutes and swindlers, the lepers and the least of the society, showing them value and a dignity that comes from an identity based in God. A love for those who were different than him, who didn't even uphold his law and were caught in sin. Love that reached out with grace instead of judgment and invited people, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's quite the story. The story of rocks and grace and freedom. As we close tonight, maybe this is the first time you've come to church in a long time. Maybe you've never been here. Maybe you've never watched us online. Maybe there's, there's something tonight about God's grace and love that just seemed to stick to you. Those words, neither do I condemn you. It's like you want to believe them. You almost wonder, is it too good to be true? Maybe this message of exchanging your sin, their regrets, the mistakes, the things that you've done, maybe that's touched something deep inside of you. Don't ignore that tonight. You know, when God gives me the words to say a message like this, I speak them in obedience, trusting the Holy Spirit knows the needs of each person that's going to hear it, whether you're in this auditorium or you're online. I don't know how the Spirit has spoken to you, but I know that Scripture tells us that His words and the message they convey are meant to show us truth, 
to expose our rebellion, to correct our mistakes, and to train us to live God's way. My prayer is that you will allow God's words to seep deep, deep into your hearts and minds today. And that whatever the message is that Jesus had for you, that you'll receive it. And that you'll let it change the way you think, the way you act, the way you love. Maybe there's something in the part of the story about the stones. Maybe you realize, you know, you've actually got stones aimed at your head because of some of the actions that you are guilty of. You need to turn. You need to change. You need to accept God's love and forgiveness in that. Or maybe you realize you've got rocks in your hands. In fact, maybe you're even carrying a backpack or rolling a wheelbarrow of them. And Jesus is whispering, drop the rocks. Drop the rocks. Maybe you're realizing you need to spend some time at the cross, exchanging your sin for his righteousness, his complete, full forgiveness. Maybe you've been hanging out in the cage, trapped in a sin and the invitation today to go, to go and sin no more, has actually created just a little glimmer of hope in you that there is life, life to the fullest outside the cage of sin. You know, wherever the Spirit spoke to you today, my deepest prayer is that you will respond with truth, truth from your inner being and that you will do what he is prompting you to do. There's going to be prayer partners up here tonight. If you feel the need to come and spend some time in prayer, maybe you want to pray by yourself, maybe you want one of us to pray with you, we'll be here. Don't walk away without responding to what the Spirit is saying to you. I'd invite you to stand as we close in prayer tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you did on the cross and what that makes available to each one of us. Thank you that your word is truth and it is life. Lord, may the words that were spoken tonight bring about change that helps us to be more like Jesus. May each of us look to you, the maker and the perfecter of our faith, to enable us to live a life that is based on truth, proving that we love you because we trust you and obey you. And then, Lord, help us to love others. Lord, show us how to love others. People in our families, people in our communities, our neighbors, our coworkers, people here in our church. Help us to be extravagant, reckless lovers to the people that you love. And thank you that your love excludes no one. We ask for faith, hope, and love, 
knowing that the greatest of these is love. So we leave tonight hearing your words again, Lord, spoken over us as a challenge, as hope, as your truth. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Amen and God bless you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.